So are you okay with that story? <laughs> Jesus is essentially rejecting this woman in need at first. In a sense, he's saying to her, um, what I'm bringing is, is really not for you and your kind. <laughs> and when she persisted, he essentially called her and her demon-possessed daughter dogs. <laughs> I'm here for the children of Israel, and the food is for the children, not for the dogs. You got that? Now the story turns good. She shows her faith in her request, and the daughter is healed. <clears throat> and that makes it easier for us to swallow. Um, but I might add, it makes it easier for us to swallow those of us who are already part of a dominant culture sometimes. <laughs> See, it turned out okay. Everything turns out okay with Jesus, right? And we do that with the Bible sometimes, when there really are some things that are troubling in the way they come to us. The truth is there is an exclusion of someone based on their ethnicity and race. The troubling part is that it's Jesus who's doing the excluding. Now, some preachers approach this passage and claim that Jesus made changes in his ministry because of this woman. That Jesus' vision and ministry plan changed because of this woman. I've heard one preacher even say that she changed, she changed the direction of his ministry. Hmm. You were, some of you were at that conference a year ago. <laughs> and I then heard it and thought, perhaps this pastor is overstating it for a purpose, maybe. But the truth is, Jesus does change. Or at least the way Matthew writes it out here, things begin to change. I believe Though, in case you're getting troubled now, <laughs> I believe, I know, Jesus, Jesus always knew what he was doing, and I believe he knew what he was doing here. Now, when he speaks of only the children of Israel and speaks of dogs, he was speaking the language of his day and culture. Canaanites were despised by the Jews. Gentiles were commonly called dogs by the Jews. But it sounds so exclusive, and dare I say, it sounds racist to our ears, doesn't it? But I do believe Jesus knew what he was doing here. And while he was speaking the language of his day that would be familiar to him and even to this woman, I believe that Jesus was cracking open a door and that he was intentionally opening a huge door to the Gentiles. It was a door that up to this point had excluded, but now was beginning to open to include. We know that Jesus' bigger mission already included Gentiles. We see it all over the Gospels. We see it beyond that. Just back a few chapters in Capernaum when Jesus was speaking. There's a picture of the ruins in Capernaum today. There's a story of him healing the centurion's servant. The centurion was a Roman Gentile man. And Jesus commends him for his faith and his understanding of the power of God. So this is even before the story. He'd already commended this Gentile there and didn't say anything about crumbs for dogs there. In Luke 17, he is in Gentile Samaritan territory when he heals the ten lepers. Remember the story of the ten lepers and only one came back? Here's a, here's a mural of some in the church of the ten lepers which is in what is currently part of the West Bank in, um, in modern-day Israel. 
occupied territory which is rife with ethnic tension today. We could hear it and we could see it. But Jesus had healed in this territory, the Samaritan territory. We know well some of his final words that come to us in Acts 1.8 where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's when he was giving the spirit that would empower this and break it all the way open. But I think the door cracks here a little bit. And Jesus is the one that gave the vision to John in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, where he says, There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. This is a text which empowers multicultural worship and congregations today. So let's take a look at this and see if it makes sense and if it touches where we are right now as followers of Jesus in this world which is troubled over issues like this right now. So here's what I want to say. In commending the faith of the Gentile woman, Jesus is cracking open a door, this door of exclusion, to make the gospel available to all people. It is a gospel of love and inclusion that stands against hate and fear. So we're going to look a little bit closer at the story and see what's going on. First of all, we ask the question, was just this a getaway for Jesus or was it foreign mission work? This is Jesus going outside of of Jewish territory to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which are north on the Mediterranean coast. Today it would be part of the country of Lebanon. It was referred to as Phoenicia then. It's the only time recorded that Jesus went outside of Jewish territory. It's possible to see that this trip to the coast is a a getaway, a time of withdrawal and preparation. As Matthew tells the story, the end is getting near. We can tell in in context here that soon Matthew will be taking his disciples with him to Jerusalem and where he faces his trial, his suffering, and death. He's been through all the things that we've been through the last couple weeks of the walking on the water, the feeding the 5,000, long days of healing. And this just gives him a little place to to perhaps offer some privacy. And and his popularity has swelled in Galilee through all those things. And the the curious and the needy and the friends and the foes alike were after him. The Jewish leaders were coming up to Galilee from uh, Jerusalem. No small trip to, 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 to deal with him. And so he's getting away, not running away, but is it possibly he's just getting away? Jesus never just did anything. There's always some intent in it, too. Or did he know? Did he he know? Was this a deliberate trip into Gentile territory? Or is it a little of both? As his heart was always tuned to those in need around him. It was foreign territory. A lot of you know that we served a church in New England from 1987 to 1992, five years. And I sometimes refer to it as my foreign mission service, which sometimes evokes laughs and would evoke from a New Englander perhaps offense. But it's about me. It was not about them. I felt like a foreign missionary sometimes serving in New England. I'm a California native. I'm a Westerner uh, to the core. And at least by that point, I'd made my peace with the Midwest. Love the Midwest now, by the way. And, um, but it was such a different culture of, 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 of the culture there and the church culture there. So I say this about me because they were great people. Uh, they loved and embraced Megan and me, and our children were really little at the time. Our children were loved there uh, amazingly by the people there. We still have some of our dearest friends that came out of that church. But I knew I would never be one of them if we stayed there long term. And there was a sense of being in a little bit foreign territory. And we were a long, long way from family at the time as well with little kids. Was this the beginning of the rabbi's foreign mission work? The work that he would call Peter to recognize when he 
with the experience with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Was this the the, the work that he was going to call the Apostle Paul to when he blinded him on the road to Damascus? When he was carrying out, Paul was really carrying out an agenda of fear and hate and Jesus stops him on the road and blinds him and calls him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Is this the beginning of that call? At the end of this chapter, there's another feeding story, the lesser-known story of the feeding of 4,000 men plus women and children. And in that story, it's significant that there's seven baskets left over in the story of the 4,000. Seven, often in Scripture, is the number of completeness or wholeness. It's a number that encompasses all the nations. And Matthew has placed the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman between the feeding of the 5,000 Jewish people in Galilee and now this story of the 4,000 and seven baskets that speak of something including all nations. The Canaanite woman and her daughter deserve more than crumbs. And after this encounter, Jesus went on to feed those who had not yet been fed. It foreshadows the going out of the gospel to the whole world. But let's look a little closer at this story and its troubling details, and we can really summarize it quickly with a request, a rejection, a reaction, and a response. And I add a fifth word there. Is it racism? The woman who requests healing for her daughter is a Canaanite. It's the only time the word's used in Matthew. There's no country of Canaan existing at that time. Canaan was the country that that, that the Israelites came to take over after coming uh, out of Egypt. But Canaanites were ancestral enemies of the Jews. So she is more than just a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. She had no doubt heard of Jesus and his miracles, but more, she calls him Lord, son of David. It's the only place in Matthew anybody calls him Lord. She calls him Lord and calls him son of David. She had the history. She knew where he was coming from and knew where he fit. She was what we call today a seeker. And since there was a seeker-sensitive church in Tyre and Sidon, she went directly to Jesus. Was he sensitive? (laughs) The disciples were just bothered by her, and they just told her to go away, and they told Jesus to tell her to go away. And Jesus said to the disciples, when they tell him, he says, you know, I was only sent to the lost. This is troubling response number one. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She's undaunted, or as we might say, yet she persisted. (laughs) And she makes her request that he would heal her daughter, cast out this demon that's troubling her daughter. And then we have troubling response number two. Is this when he says directly to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yikes! Gentile dogs was a derogatory and insulting name used by Jesus here. It's likely, though, that there is possibly a tone of voice facial expression piece we're missing here. Perhaps we miss it when we only see the translated words of it's wrong to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. You know, sometimes we might even refer to a friend in a cute derogatory, you rascal, you are a nutcase, and you're my favorite one, or something like that. Possible. And we might say it with smile and affection. I can almost see Jesus perhaps playing with her here and seeing where this is going. And, 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 and you can almost see a wink in Jesus' eye when he says this part. It's almost like he's anticipating a response about the crumbs when he says it's not right to take the bread for the children. Because she doesn't seem to take it as rejection. She moves forward. She plays right along with her comment about the crumbs and about the dogs. Yes, it is a very con- 
derogatory term. Dogs, most of the dogs in those, those days were wild, dirty, mangy, dangerous dogs, like in many parts of the developing world now. But this word for dogs is actually different. It's translated in some of your Bibles, perhaps, little dogs. And it actually refers to house pets. And if you want to conjure up an image of a cute little fluffy one, you can. <laughs> it's a much kinder image. It fits, under, it fits with this image of under the table because we wouldn't have those dangerous dogs on our table, but the house pets we might. And though they don't get the full piece of bread, they get the crumbs. That's the picture I paint with it. Maybe I'm guilty of doing what I said at the beginning of just trying to feel better about it, but she does get it. She gets it, and Jesus gets it. And here, evidence of her quick mind of, of kind of verbally sparring with Jesus and getting to this point. But way more important, it's not just her quick mind, it is her developing faith. Remember, she called him Lord, son of David. And she expresses it, she moves forward with that faith. And Jesus commends her great faith, and he heals her daughter. It makes more sense that it fits with what we know about a compassionate Jesus. And the door to the Gentiles now has cracked open. But the words that are troubling are still troubling because they are words when coming from the mouth of another person speak of disdain, exclusion, marginalization, inequality. They speak of our fear of the unknown and they speak of deep-seated, culturally-based hatred. And the words that are troubling are still troubling because they touch a nerve that is so raw today in our culture, and that is racism. So we're going to take just a little look. We looked a little closer at the story. We're going to take a little bit of a look around us as well. What happened in Charlottesville last week revealed just how ugly and deep a blatant racism can go. And whatever you may feel about the counter-protesters or our president's reactions, we are not talking about that. I just don't want us to miss the inherent evil in the neo-Nazi and white supremacy movement, period. The inherent evil in any movement that would hold one race above another. I've been trying to catch up with things this week, and I've read a few different blogs. And Ed Stetzer, some of you know his name. He's an evangelism expert. He's the executive director of the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton. And he wrote this in Christianity Day this week, and particularly addressing it to white evangelicals. Setzer says, let me start by saying this movement is antithetical to the gospel. It is an abomination to all that we stand for, and it must be condemned on every level of leadership in the church. There is no room for waffling. We cannot sit in silence hoping this will pass. It doesn't fit. And as we revisit God's plan and as we revisit the breadth of the gospel, and sometimes when we do that, we, we sing a simple little Sunday school song that speaks a profound truth. Jesus loves the little children, all little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's a little Sunday school song, uh, but it's more than that song. It's song. It speaks of the fullness of the truth. It speaks of a gospel of love for all. It speaks of God's plan for all people and all nations. We know it all the way back in Genesis 12 when, when God calls Abraham and says, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless all nations through you. All through the Old Testament, 
Though it's focused on God working through the Jews, there's always the promise of, of, of working through others. And all through it and setting up the plans for them to move into the land, God is always talking about welcoming the foreigner, welcoming the foreigner. Remember when Jesus said after clearing the temple, remember Jesus clears the temple and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of robbers. Remember when Jesus said that? If you don't look in the Bible, he got really mad. This is one of those righteous indignation times for Jesus. What Jesus there is quoting the prophet Isaiah. The prophet uh, Isaiah's vision of a day when the foreigners, those of all nations, will be brought into the people of God. That's what Isaiah was talking about. And Isaiah says, "Let Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. We see it come to fruition as the church grows and expands. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision of the large sheet that drops down with all these different animals, several of them unclean to Jewish people, and God says, you can have them all, Peter. And then Peter says when he's in the household of Cornelius, this Gentile man, this Gentile Roman leader, Paul, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And need I remind us of the words of everybody's favorite memory verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When we look around us, we know what we see and what we hear does not align with this gospel of love. And we need to be strong on that and stand on that. That's as we look around, but also this becomes a time to look inside, which is harder to do sometimes. Is there change that needs here? Did Jesus change in this encounter with the woman? We're uncomfortable with the fact of anybody else changing Jesus, but there was a change that happened as a result of it. Is it just showing a change in the gospel impact and the mission? But what about a change in me? You know, it's, it's easy to paint the Charlottesville thing and what's happened in Boston as just blat- blatant and hateful racism. That's, it's troubling and it's ugly, but it's easy to label that as, as something we stand apart from. Blatant racism, but in me, what are the subtle things? What are the areas of confusion that still royal here? What are the opinions I have? What are the stereotypes of different that I continue to hold on to and can't let go of? Some of you heard me share, I'm, I'm troubled as a white person of how often I don't even think about it. That's a problem of racism too, because it does not impact me directly. What needs to change in me? I caught myself last night. We walk our dog around the block every night, same two blocks every night. So for last night, we wanted more points on our Apple Watch uh, fitness thing, so we walked farther. And so we walked around a block that we don't go by. And I, we walked by one home, and, and it's a home I passed before, but all the lights were on because we don't walk by at night. And I looked inside, and I said to me, I said, wow, look at those garish colors. And then I saw people in there celebrating who were clearly of a different ethnicity than me. You know, not every culture exalts pottery barn colors. (laughs) And it's funny, but I'm serious. And I felt ashamed of noting the garish colors and immediately wanted to go knock on the door and apologize to them and meet them and learn more of their culture. 
I didn't because the dog kept pulling us around the block. But. So we need to ask these questions of ourselves. What needs work inside of me? What needs to be worked on in me? All of us, whatever, whether white dominant culture or those of others, what needs work on inside of me? Even our attitude about the things that are going on, but particularly as we look at the diversity around us. I call you to look inside as, as I commit to do that as well. I think another question for us is what is the gospel calling the church of today to do as we follow the rabbi, our theme for this summer? Some of you know the name Russell Moore. He's a Southern Baptist leader. He's caught a little fire lately. He's spoken out boldly in terms of um, some political issues and just, mainly justice issues. He's a well-respected Southern Baptist theologian and ethicist, and he wrote this article that appeared in the Washington Post this week. The title of it is White Supremacy Angers Jesus, But Does It Anger His Church? Because I knew as soon as this broke, there would be posts on Facebook and other places of assuming that the white evangelical church leaders would not speak up. You are witnessing your pastor speak up, okay? (laughs) Moore says this. He says, this sort of ethnic nationalism and racial superiority ought to matter to every Christian, regardless of national, ethnic, or racial background. After all, we are not our own, but we are part of a church, a church made up of all nations, all ethnicities, united not by blood and soil. He's getting at nationalist-based faith and connections. United not by blood and soil, but by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. The church should call white supremacy what it is, terrorism. But more than terrorism, White supremacy is Satanism. Even worse, white supremacy is devil worship that often pretends that it is speaking for God. And then he says this line, the title of the article, white supremacy angers Jesus of Nazareth. The question is, does it anger his church? I think we are poised, Naperville Covenant, (laughs) to discuss this and talk about it and learn from it. And to be angry in a righteous way, not in a knee-jerk, reactive, pushback way. But an anger that is rooted deep in who God is and deep, deep into the gospel. And learning from each other and learning what we can do to address these issues. And teaching our children. I don't know how many of you read Mary Smith's column in the newspaper, but she had something the other day of... She said, actually, this, this, this is not the worst thing to happen. She said, we can actually grow from this. And she, um, I, I don't trust myself to quote. But she stands about, talks about how, how this is learned behavior. And she says, uh, a few days ago, Barack Obama, the former president, tweeted the words of Nelson Mandela, the late South African anti-apartheid hero. It became the most popular tweet ever. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. And then she goes on to say, We're not living in America. we are not living America's worst night moment, night, worst moment, she goes into others. We are living in a loud, agitated, frightening time that demands that we pay attention, that we speak forcefully against injustice, and that we listen. And that's kind of my final word today, too, is listen. Listen, not react, listen. All of us. And I'm just going to say, especially those of us who are white, listen. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. 
You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God's desired. Human anger doesn't. But righteous anger might be what stirs in us as we take time to listen and watch, and particularly in the body of Christ, to learn together. I listened to my friend A.J. this week. A.J. is pastor of City of Hope Covenant Church in Bolingbrook. A.J. grew up on the south side and um, about seven years ago found the covenant and planted City of Hope. He's worked hard to get his, finish his undergrad degree, got his graduate degree, his MDiv from North Park just this last year and is now an ordination track and I'm his ordination mentor. We were working together on his paper. <laughs> There's a question in the ordination paper that talks about how you respond to issues of um, pain and loss in, in your ministry to others and reflect on your own. And in his first draft, he only made casual reference to it. And in his second draft, he did. <laughs> he did. And it grieves me what A.J. and his wife Dawn and their children Luther and Deja have had to endure just because they are black people living in the suburbs. <laughs> We need to listen, <laughs> and we need to understand better, and we need to stick with our sisters and brothers of, in Christ of all color and address this thing because we have the power of God and we have the power of the gospel. So let's listen, and let's pray. Jesus, we understand that this text is, really throws us a curveball. And yet, Lord, as it stirs in us a deeper commitment to you, and as it stirs a deeper commitment to be your followers and your agents in this world, we pray that it would empower us to feel a holy anger and yet to also see together holy solutions in you and the power of your gospel. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.